Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. I am Sean Garner in studio with Adam Hanson. We are attorneys with an estate planning firm, and we do estate planning. We help people keep the wealth that they earn over their lifetime and their legacy and pass it on to their children or other organizations that they hold near and dear to their hearts. But we talk a lot about what's going on in our country and the world in general, and uh, we have a great show today. We're going to talk about the Electoral College. So before you tune us out or tune out yourself, hear me out a little bit. The Electoral College is a really important aspect of the Constitution and how we elect the President of the United States. And it, if you research it a little bit, there was a time that I felt that uh, the Electoral College was overly complicated, that we could, with today's technology, just use a popular vote system to elect our president. I felt that the Electoral College may have been something that was done because of the difficulty in transportation or communication back when the Constitution was, was drafted, or potentially um, a distrust for the majority of the population of the people, and therefore um, electorates would be determined in each state to nominate the president. And the more I researched it, the more I, f I discovered how brilliant it was in anticipating the diversity of the population and of the states, and also um, the, the need for proper representation of each state. And, and it, it's a fantastic and a brilliant idea. So let's just jump into it and break it down um, by its essential components. Each state has two senators. And each state has representatives in the House of Representatives based on uh, their population. So, for example, uh, California is a very populous state, the most populous state. And so it has 53 representatives in Congress. And then it's got two senators. And so its electoral votes are 55. Add up the amount of representatives and the senators, and that's how many electoral votes it has. Each state currently, with the exception of two, casts all of their electoral votes for whoever wins the popular vote in that state. So if there's a 51% popular vote for the Democratic nominee, then all of the 55 electoral votes for California will go to that person. It, it doesn't go proportionate based on how many people voted, and, and, and some states do do that. For example, Nebraska and Maine, they break theirs up proportionately. So if uh, there's a portion of people that vote Republican and a portion that vote Democrat, then they will um, divvy out their electoral votes proportionately. A lot of states don't like that because they feel that it takes away from the weight that they contribute, the weight that they have on the outcome of the presidential election. They want to put as much weight towards their state as possible. So they've written into their constitution that in the, in the individual state constitutions that whoever wins the popular vote for that state, then the electorates are mandated to cast their votes for that presidential nominee. And so it's, it's not discretionary for the electorate um, individuals of that slate. So it's a slate of electorates that uh, go ahead and cast their votes for that presidential nominee. So what's some pros and cons about that? 
one con I might think is, well, it's complicated. Not everybody understands that. And uh, we could make it easier by just saying, well, one person, one vote, right? And, and, and right on the surface, and I'm, I'm very much for the easiest solution is usually the best solution. And so I, I default to that application. However, in this case, if we were to do that, you got to look back a little bit deeper into what's going on here and how states run elections. For example, California runs elections much different than Texas. And we all know that Maricopa County runs its elections different than anybody else and it takes a long time to do it. But the point is, each state has the authority to determine the procedure for the elections. And so if you had just a popular vote, then essentially what you're doing is you're erasing those, the state's individual authority to determine the procedural process. For example, if Arizona determined that um, early ballots would be received only three weeks prior to the election and that you'd have to send in proper identification and request a, a ballot in order to vote by mail. And California said, no, we're just going to send it out to anybody in every address that we have. Well, if it's a popular vote and, and California casts in 25 million votes and Arizona casts in 3 million votes, then essentially our, our practice and our procedure for voting is swallowed up in California's practice and all of our votes are nullified. So really, we just got swallowed up into California's procedure. And we already, I can see at least, that the national system and the federal government has overstepped the bounds of state individual rights. That would do it significantly more. I agree with that. So when I go to the ballot box and I cast a vote for a national candidate, let's say a president in the presidential election, I'm actually not voting for the president directly. I'm voting for the president in my given state. So here in Arizona, let's use the Arizona example. When I go to the ballot box and I vote for that particular president on the ballot, I'm I'm not my my vote doesn't go directly to Congress or to the Senate to be confirmed. It goes to what I would deem a hybrid of these two different systems. So on the Arizona state level, it's a popular vote here in Arizona. So a person that takes the the popular vote in that particular campaign here in Arizona, for example, using uh, the 2020 election, Joe Biden won Arizona by a, by a very small percentage uh, popu- the, of the popular vote. And so what that mandated for Arizona was that our electoral college of 11 representatives going to the House of Representatives to cast a vote for Arizona was going to be in the favor of Joe Biden. And so when I went to the ballot box, I wasn't voting directly to Congress. I was voting here in the state of Arizona. And if if the guy or the gal that I voted for did not win here in Arizona the popular vote, then our electoral college is going to go in a way that I hoped it wouldn't go, you know, if I didn't vote for that candidate. But that's just how the system works. And and a lot of people don't understand that. They think it's a, a popular vote. I vote for this candidate, and that's going somehow magically to the national government. And that one person, one vote kind of theory. And I think we've heard that phrase over time, one person, one vote. And so we think that it directly 
votes in these individuals when it doesn't. We're voting for an electoral college for your representatives of your particular state, and then they go to the House of Representatives and, and cast their, their vote. And that's what the big deal was in, in January 6th of 2020, uh, 2021, uh, when, you know, you had the storming of the, the Congress, and they were allegedly trying to stop the the confirmation of those electoral college votes on the on the um, House of Representatives floor, and uh, they were unsuccessful with that. But that was a whole uh, one of the ideas behind that. That uh, what do you call it, Cody? Coup? <laughs> yeah, attempted coup. Attempted coup. Uh, I don't. I don't see it that way. I mean, I've I've looked at the evidence and different lights and things like that that has been provi- provided to us, and it didn't look like that to me. But you and I differ on that opinion. Um, it looked like there were some different actors involved here, like we've seen in, in different riots. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Yeah. So it it wasn't. Uh, what what should we say? Completely innocent. It wasn't like a national coup in, in Venezuela or Colombia or something like that. It was definitely, uh, you, you see evidence of, of different actors that, that were involved in instigators here. Having said that, it wasn't successful. And so the Electoral College elected Joe Biden in, in, in that 2020 election, uh, according to plan, according to the constitutional guidelines that have been given to us by the founders. And I think over time, I've, I've often asked myself, well, going to what Sean had just brought up at this point in our life where you can get information at the click of a mouse or in a tweet in seconds, why can't we go to a popular vote system now? Because it seems to me like communication is lightning fast. It's not an issue of whether or not I know about this particular candidate. Cause I can learn about this candidate now using online methods, talking to people that I know I feel like we nationally are closer to those people that are running for particularly the office of the United States president. And uh, so why do we need the electoral college now? Wouldn't it be easier just to do a one for one vote? When I vote for this particular candidate, that's, that's nationally what's going to happen. I don't need an electoral college to get in my way. And maybe the result would be different. So here's the thing. Let's bring up this 2000 election Gore v. Bush. We know that the focus from the media and from the Supreme Court was on Florida and the Florida voting system and what votes to count. The hanging chad became something that was a word that didn't even we didn't even know about. And now it became a a thing that's defined in a lot of uh, electoral laws. But uh, what the determining issue was, certainly Florida was important and whoever won Florida would win the vote. But what was also important was West Virginia had typically been Democrat, had been a safe haven for Democrats. But George Bush was able to flip West Virginia. West Virginia is a small state. It's only got five electoral votes. But because he was able to flip that state, he was able to get enough electoral votes. The threshold is 270 to um, become nominated and, and become the next president. So what that does is it helps us go back and focus on are states different enough to be um, considered important in determining the outcome of the presidential election? We know that federal authority has grown far beyond what was originally intended by the drafters of the Constitution and our founding fathers. And the president's authority is immensely more 
um, far-reaching and and uh, all-encompassing than it was originally intended to be. So what we need and what the um, delegates to the Constitutional Convention were really concerned about was that their state would be adequately, adequately represented in the government of the nation. And so what the Electoral College allows to happen is that small states like West Virginia, like Wyoming, like Montana, that have relatively few electoral votes. You know, Montana, Wyoming only have three electoral votes each. Nevada, that was that was a huge focus in this last election. It only has six electoral votes. Arizona is even a small state comparatively compared to our neighbor California that's got 55 because Arizona only has 11 electoral votes. But the candidates are extremely focused on those states and they want to diversify their campaign. And that's good because we want not only the individuals to be represented, but we want our values to be represented. And I think it's a, it's a fair thing to say that the values of people that live in Wyoming are starkly different than those that live in San Francisco, California. And so we don't want those that live in these huge populous cities to dictate the election every time. We see that in Arizona, and, and for us here in Yuma County, it, it rubs us the wrong way. We see that most of the rural counties in this last election for the governor and for the senator um, voted Republican. Yet the outcome was the opposite. It was a Democrat um, candidate that won, and you know Katie Hobbs is now our governor. So, Adam, you mentioned on one of our shows a few times back that it would be nice if we had an electoral college in Arizona. And what would that look like? Well, let, let's just simplify it really quickly. We've got 15 counties in Arizona, and the counties here are run much differently than one another, just like states are run differently, just like Wyoming is different than California. And I don't think anybody's going to argue that uh, Yuma runs very much differently than Maricopa. But Maricopa and Pima County, which are the most populous counties, they, they basically dictate the outcome of the election. What would be nice is if we had some more representation based on our values that wasn't strictly based on our population. And uh, so I was thinking through this, and I put together some, some simple model that could be used to um, implement an electoral system, which, okay, don't get me wrong here. I don't think this is ever going to happen, but it would be cool if it did. What if each county had um, 10,000 votes, the value of 10,000 votes? And then we just had a general election as well. And so now we've got 150,000 votes that are left up to the counties. That's relatively insignificant considering how many votes that are, are occurring in um, the state. I think there's four, between four and five million votes that, that happen in Arizona. So if you think of it, 150,000 is not that much. But when you think about it as to the candidates and how much separated the winners from the losers, when it's 10,000, 5,000, we, we saw that with uh, the difference between Katie Hobbs and um, Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake, it was only, it was about 12,000, I think, when all was said and done. If the counties had 10,000 votes each, all those rural counties that voted for Carrie Lake, those would have carried the election. And therefore, the rural counties would have had a bit more representation. They wouldn't have a ton, but they'd have a bit more representation. And therefore, 
all the rest of us that don't live in this big city of Phoenix or, or the surrounding areas wouldn't have to um, be governed by the politics of those people that live in those highly populated areas. I think that's a great point. We've got to go to break. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU. I'm attorney Adam Hanson. I'm in the studio today with Sean Gardner, my partner and, and attorney in crime, and we've got Cody Beeson. He's running the board, pushing buttons and stuff like that, whatever he does to make himself look like he's doing something. But he makes us sound good. Oh, and he's got applause buttons. That's nice. Nice little touch. Um, just to remind you, we are attorneys here in town, and we've been in the business of helping families both here and abroad get planning in place legally that will help them in the event that they become incapacitated or they pass away. I know it's not something fun to think about, but uh, it happens to all of us. We all will pass away at some point uh, during our lives. And uh, the question is, are you ready for that in the sense of are your family members in a position to take over things um, on your behalf? Are they able to just you know, not skip a, a, a beat and just keep moving forward with paying bills, with uh, liquidating things or getting things to where they need to go according to instructions that you've left behind. And that's really what it comes down to. How do you put things together in, in a way that can be less stressful, um, not overwhelming and avoid government interaction as much as possible and uh, do and keep your wishes according to your intent uh, the best way possible. And that's what we, we really try to do on a daily basis is help families put together legal planning that will will avoid fights and court and things like that to get things to where they need to go and, and handled the way that you want them to be handled. And in that same vein, we, we love being involved in our community. And part of that involvement is becoming aware of the issues around us in our daily lives. Most of those issues can go back to one of the most important documents in our daily lives, and you might not think it to be true, but it's the Constitution. Today we've been talking a lot about the Electoral College and the reasons for it and the reasons that have been brought up to get rid of it and go to a popular vote system, at least nationally. And in the last segment, Sean discussed his idea of 
in a in a perfect world, in his perfect world, what he would like to see is an electoral college in the on the state level of Arizona. And I agree with him on that. As I've I've seen the 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 last election cycles over the years go through, I I've seen the wisdom in the founders and the federal way that we do an election, and that is using the electoral college system where we've got representatives that go to the House of Representatives and they cast their votes on behalf of a particular jurisdiction or state. And on the state level, we would have what we have is what we call a popular vote. And then the, the representatives of that state go back to Washington, D.C., and then they cast their vote on behalf of the candidate nationally. And so what Sean was talking about last segment was he likes the idea of, or he's starting to come on to the idea of maybe an electoral college system here on the state level. And I agree with him on that because as I, uh, using this example of the last election, our governor election between Katie Hobbs and um, Carrie Lake, if you were to look at the Arizona map, I think there were three counties, Sean, correct me if I'm wrong on that. It's either three or four. It's something minimal. We've got 15 counties total in Arizona. And I think three of those counties actually voted for Katie Hobbs. To the contrary, all the surrounding counties of, of uh, Maricopa, Pima, and I think up north it was maybe Navajo or Co- Coconino, uh, you know, one of those. Oh, yeah, Coconino. Probably Coconino, yeah, yeah. Flagstaff. Yeah. yeah, Flagstaff. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> Coconino. <laughs> so you got like the, the strip here up the middle. And uh, I think those were the only ones, correct me if I'm wrong, there might be another Indian. T- I, when I think of Coconino and, and like Navajo <clears throat> and Apache County, yeah. I'm thinking That's those are the reservations. So it was Maricopa, uh, Pima, and then Apache and Coconino. Yeah. So those are the ones that were blue this last election cycle. And all other counties, all other 11 counties, right? So there's four that went. Went yeah. for uh, Katie Hobbs, yeah, and then the rest, the eleven. So eleven to four. I mean, you're talking eleven counties to four counties. So we we'd have four counties, so forty thousand votes for the Katie Hobbs, and we'd have a hundred and ten thousand votes for Kerry Lake. So the difference there. I mean, I'm not a mathematician here, but we're talking seventy thousand votes. That's a lot. That's a that's a huge disparity when you're talking about a tight race. Now, when you're talking about millions, I think it's it's fair enough to be representative of the counties, but it's drastic enough to really change the outcome of the election, where Carrie Lake only lost by 12,000 votes. And even Blake Masters, I mean, he lost, I think it was something like 30,000 votes or 35,000 votes. That would have swung both of those elections. So we would have uh, new another representative in uh, the Senate, and also our governor would, would, would be Republican. But when you look at the map, the Arizona House of Representatives map, not for the federal government, but for the House of Representatives in Arizona, mm-hmm. my question is, why do we have these lines all over the place? And you, you already answered that question, is really to gather in, as you look at the map, it's gathering in roughly the same population amount, but the lines are all over the place. Why don't we just say our voting, our voting districts are our counties? Yuma County is a voting district. Right. Yavapai, because, Maricopa. And, and because we know that counties are run, they, they've got their own governments, county governments. Yes. And we vote our county representatives in, and, and we go and we run our politics a certain way. And 
people move from one county to the next county because they enjoy the way those counties are run or out of the city into the county or vice versa because they, they enjoy how the government is run. And that is exactly what it should be. It shouldn't be where the popular or the populace can just determine the outcome in the government of everybody. In fact, we're not a democracy, and we say it so often. In fact, even news pundits on both sides of the aisle say, this is a threat to our democracy. We're a democracy. We're not a democracy. We never have been a democracy. What The, the, the terrible thing about a democracy is that it allows the majority of people to act as tyrants and to trample over the rights of the minority. For example, a, a great example of a democracy is you got two wolves and a sheep, right? And they vote on what's for dinner. Well, well what's going to happen, you know? We're going to have lamb chops. But when you have a, a, a republic, then you have rights of individuals. And so, therefore, you get individuals that represent the values and protect the rights, and then you get a vote on those representatives. And so it, the vote is never whether or not we're going to have lamb for dinner. The vote is, okay, everybody's going to eat. Now let's vote on how we're going to get that. And lamb chops is not an option because it's, you know, the lamb has the right to live. <laughs> That's the difference between a republic and a pure democracy. A democracy, you get a bunch of people accumulated together and it becomes a demagoguery. And that's really where that word comes from. It's, it's mobocracy, where you get a group of people that start voting in a block and the rights of the individuals get trampled. And I think we start to see that. You use uh, California as a model. I don't, I don't know if you want to go over here, uh, Sean, but they have complete uh, one-party rule in California. Their Senate, their House of Representatives there in California is all the same party. Um, all the representation is the same party. And so my brother who lives in California says that's very frustrating. He feels like he doesn't have a voice because nothing he can do at the ballot, he feels like, is going to change anything because they have complete one-party rule over there. And if it weren't that way, then you feel like you have a voice at some particular point. I think that helps us. I think here on the national level, we've got the House. You know, it's an opposite party of the president. I think that's really good. I think uh, that's really what the founders were intending. They didn't want this king to be out there just doing whatever he or she willy-nilly wanted to do, and they wanted to separate those powers out. And I like to see... I like to see a different party in power in different branches of government because it helps with the balance of power yeah. issue. Doesn't completely snuff out a dictator or a tyrant or an executive order on behalf of a president. Not necessarily, but it helps stall it. It helps really kind of allow for um, a pause before full wide control of, of our government and our policies. And so when I see a House representative that uh, representative of a different party than the president, I like that. Check and balance. Yeah, it's a check and balance. And I say that even when it's not my party in that, that particular position. Absolutely. You need to have different voices. I mean, I, I, oftentimes I'll think, I've thought to myself, if I was ever president of the United States, I won't be, and I'm not going to be, but I try to put myself in that position. Would I have the gumption enough to surround myself with differing voices of, a, of an opposite party? 
what we often see is a president get elected and then he has his whole cabinet come in. He puts in place his czars and his particular uh, executive heads of the IRS and of the Border Patrol and, and all these agencies. And they're always of his or her party, right? And I would like to see just once a different party executive head being put in, uh, or different voices in that particular cabinet. And you don't really see that. You surround yourself with all those people that have the same ideas, and that's going to be a challenge. You know, then we see what we see now where it's just you're driving policies through and the other party or the other people that feel, they feel like they don't have a voice or not represented it. And, and then that causes animosity. It causes a lot of stress and you see up uprisings really is what that will lead to. And we don't, I, I would like to see a president have, or at least be humble enough to do that, to put people around him or her that are of a different opinion in these higher up type uh, positions. Yeah. We have to take a break. Uh, this is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, Law, but we're going to come back and talk more about this riveting issue of the Electoral College. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. Yuma, Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner, an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. We're talking about the Electoral College, and we're talking about how important it is to keep this system and, and how brilliant our founding fathers were for implementing the system initially in the Constitution. we got to remember that the biggest dispute between the, the state representatives in the Constitutional Convention was whether or not their state was going to have its voice drowned out by other states. For example, we had little states like Rhode Island that didn't want to be drowned out by big states like Virginia. And they wanted to have a weak national government because a strong national government would be essentially governed by the bigger states and therefore they would lose their their autonomy and their sovereignty. And the compromise there was Every state gets the same amount of senators. Every state gets two senators. That's one compromise. The other compromise is that uh, every state gets representatives in the House of Representatives based on the population. That We, we talked about this a little bit uh, last week where the five-thirds of a person rule came in, and there's a lot of people that feel that is a racial and racist 
thing to have in the Constitution. But it's actually the opposite. What was the argument was the big states, Virginia, that had slavery, they wanted each of the slaves to be counted towards their number of representatives that they had. And the smaller states said, no, if you're not going to let them vote, if you're not going to let them have a voice, then you don't get representation for them in Congress. Essentially, the slave owners don't get more representation based on the, the population of slaves. So we're now, the southern states were totally against that, so they had to come to some type of compromise, and the northern states said, fine. For every five people that you have, we'll give you a count of three people. That's where the five or three-fifths came in. So it was a compromise by the northern states to give the southern states some representation for the people that were there until those people could vote for themselves and, and were no longer in bondage. So it wasn't racist against the slaves, it was actually um, a, a downplay of power against the slave owners. Now what we have is representation by population in Congress. And it's, it's absolutely critical that small states have representation in the presidential election. We all know that the president wields a ton of power. And we don't want the president just focusing on New York and California and Florida and maybe even Texas for their campaigns and all of the rest of the smaller states being ignored because that's where the big population centers are. We want Idaho and Wyoming and Nebraska to get representation in that uh, presidential election. Now, that's, that's one thing for the Electoral College. Another thing is each state demonstrates or makes its own laws and procedures for elections. And we certainly don't agree with how California elections are run here in Arizona. We have different rules and procedures for our elections. In California, for example, they allow for um, people to have third-party ballot drop-off centers where you can go to a church or you can go to a third-party organization and you can drop off ballots and then those organizations can bring vats of ballots to the county representatives and, and deposit them. Well, in Arizona, we call that ballot harvesting. And that lends itself to a lot of fraud. We don't know if that third party is going to be have proper oversight and whether or not those ballots came in properly, were validly checked, or weren't changed during the process. So we think that that lends itself to fraud for either party. And so we, we have our own state laws that determine our elections. And so does Georgia. Georgia just went through this election reform. And there was a lot of talk about how what it was doing is it was restricting access to the minority voters to vote in Georgia. Well, what we've seen historically now is Georgia has more voter turnout than it's ever had, both in 2000 and in 2022 in this midterm election. So there has been no voter suppression. This cry of foul play and racial intent to suppress minority voter voices has not played out to be true at all. They'll still, they'll still say, despite these voter restrictions, that um, the voters defied it and they came out anyway. But why don't we just look at the evidence? If mo more voters came out and voted, then were the laws really restricting the ability to vote? Or were they just trying to identify accurately who the voters were so they had a clean, fair election? And I think the latter is obvious. The evidence supports the latter for sure.
Another thing that uh, electoral college does is it makes it harder to cheat overall. So, for example, let's say that uh, some cities were very loosely run and um, the oversight committees for the elections were, were corrupt and those cities were very popular. If there was a national vote and millions of votes came into those cities and there was no electoral college, so if, if, if that city basically would carry the state and would override smaller states altogether, one city could have five million votes. And that would override Wyoming, Montana, and let's say North Dakota combined. I mean, maybe it wasn't somebody purposely, you know, rigging the system. Maybe it was an issue somewhere. The process yeah. broke. Yeah, yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is if there was an error, it gives us a chance for that error to really reverberate skew. throughout the entire nation. Thank you. Yep. And, and that's exactly what we want to avoid. If something happens, we want it to, to, to be localized. We want to cut it off from affecting the rest of the states. We want Arizona to have its 11 electoral votes. We want Wyoming to have its three electoral votes. And we don't want those to be drowned out. They already are drowned out somewhat by California's 55 electoral votes. But um, at least they're not totally washed. And so each state gets to determine for itself how to run its system and to make sure that its system is not compromised by bad actors or just bad policies and bad procedures. We know that both sides of the aisle have, have cried foul when it comes to voting and election integrity. Um, the left has said that there's been Russian collusion and that foreign foreign nationalities have been involved in our voting system. Well, how much easier would that be if it was all one big national vote? So what they have to do if they're going to get involved in the election is they have to go to each state and they have to know which states are going to actually swing the election. And that's very hard to predict. We've seen every election so far, what we thought was a solid state for red or blue didn't turn out to be so. And so they would have to understand which ones were the important ones in advance and then go to each one individually and those systems individually and insert those, those ballots. And that becomes much more difficult. Now, voter fraud and um, election integrity is something that we need to take seriously. Uh, for example, the Pew Research Center did a study and it determined that there was 24 million votes or um, registration, registered voters, that were dubious, that were not legit in their determination. And I don't know what criteria they ran, but they said there's about 24 million. And now that's, a, that's a, a, an absolute ton. We break that down. They determined that there, there was 44 counties where there were more registered voters than there were people eligible to vote. Mm. Did I say 44? 44, yeah. I meant 244. Oh, wow. Okay. 244. It's 29 states actually have more registered voters than they have legal people to vote. So does that mean that the voter rolls haven't been updated when people die off? That those yes. haven't been? It's a combination of things. Yeah. That um, people are actually registered in more than one state or that when they, they pass away that they're, they don't um, get taken off the voter rolls. So you take those two things in combination with the amount of people that travel from state to state, and that could easily account for it. I don't know what the other factors are for it, but you continue going down that. Um, eight states actually have 
more voters registered than are even uh, people that are legal age to vote. And we're counting whether they are legal citizens or illegal residents. We're talking about total population of that age. There are eight states where there are more registered voters than there are actual people that are of the legal age to vote. So is voter voter fraud and, and election integrity an issue? Yes, it is. Can we try to diffuse it by each state looking at the best solution for its area and implementing the policy that it feels works best for its area? Yes. But I certainly don't want people in Sacramento determining how our vote is run here and our elections are run here in, in Arizona. And I don't want them running it from New York to Georgia. We want those states to independently determine for themselves how to run their elections. And that makes it much more difficult because we all know that there are scam artists out there. There are um, bad actors, both in foreign governments and domestically, that want to rig the election. And that makes it more difficult to rig the election with the Electoral College. And that just shows the brilliance of putting together this system that it is a bit more complicated than the popular vote, but it does give the states the representation that they demanded at the Constitutional Convention, and that's why it needs to stay. Why would I even talk about this if it wasn't an issue? It is an issue. It's, it's, a, it's an absolute critical issue because there's a movement happening right now that's called uh, the National Popular Vote, NPV. Okay. And um, so what would happen if, what would be the process necessary for us to change from the electoral college system to a popular vote system? What's the legal process necessary? Well, we'd have to go through uh, an amendment to the Constitution. Amend the Constitution. And we've talked about this in the past, that we're doing a lot of things where we misinterpret the Constitution or we twist its language to conform with what we want it to do today instead of going through the procedures of amending the Constitution. And the the Founding Fathers made the, the, the process of changing the Constitution difficult on purpose because of course, society is going to change, and they can't predict what it's going to be in the future. But if the change is important enough, then we need to come together and have two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate and three-quarters of the states agree and ratify that change. But um, that's how you amend the Constitution. What's happening with this um, national popular vote, NPV, is they're going individually to states and they're having them sign a contract. Their legislatures agree that whatever the popular vote is of the nation, that state will cast all of its electoral votes towards that candidate, to the candidate that won the popular vote of the nation. And what that does is it goes through a backdoor way of undermining the Constitution. And when we start undermining the Constitution in that way, whether you think it's right or wrong to change the Electoral College, it's, it's changing the Constitution. And if you change it that way, then how are we going to change the Constitution for representatives in Congress? How are we going to change the Constitution for Supreme Court justices? And, and it just it unravels the entire system. It's a really nefarious way to take away the voices of the states in participating in the presidential election. You may not agree with the popular vote versus the Electoral College. And if you don't, then talk to your representatives about putting forth uh, an amendment to the Constitution. But don't 
go through the back door because then you're undermining the, the whole foundation of our, rep, our republic. We're not a democracy. We're not run by the popular vote altogether. If we were, then all of us that were in the minority on any issue would have our rights trampled upon. We're a representative republic. And we vote for the representatives democratically, but though the republic supports our rights and we want to continue that system. That's all the time that we have for today. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.